This is Acts 8, 1 through 8. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. That's the word of the Lord. Why don't I get what I deserve? I'm, uh, I, this past weekend, I was uh, celebrating one of my brother's bachelor's uh, bachelor party. Uh, I was in Virginia. Full disclosure, I'm the eldest of five boys. Uh, my dad's a pastor. And um, my second youngest, Paul, uh, was having a bachelor party. Uh, so I flew into Philadelphia, and then I went to, uh, we drove down to Virginia. He had rented a lake house. It was beautiful. We were canoeing. We were just having ourselves a grand old time. And I was genuinely, genuinely happy for him. But as the eldest sibling, it's hard to ignore the voice in the back of my head saying, I wish I had what you have. Because Paul is going to be the first Kenyan boy married in the family. And I was actually supposed to be married this year, and it didn't work out. And then also, while I was there, I found out that the youngest brother is going to be engaged to his girlfriend in probably another two months or so. And so while I'm excited and ecstatic for my brothers, it hurts a little bit, and I couldn't help grumbling and, if I'm honest, just angrily talking to God in the back of my mind, not even necessarily with words, but just kind of seething and saying something sort of like, where's my blessing, God? Where's my wife? I moved to L.A. six years ago, and I'm still trying to get into animation, and I'm still in the, an apartment that I'm, I, I have so many like restrictions on it, but it's what I can afford. And I see people in my church who are doing so much better than I am. God, what gives? I've been a, I've, I'm a pastor's kid. I've been in church my entire life. Uh, I gave some of my high school summers to child, uh, CEF, which is Child Evangelism Fellowship. I went to a Christian college. I taught at a Christian elementary school. And now I'm an elder. <laughs> My resume is stacked. And yet it feels oftentimes like believing in you is more of a burden. It's not a joyful thing for me. And if I'm really honest, this Christianity thing kind of feels like it's not working for me. And, uh, and that's hard. And I'm sure many of you can resonate with that. If you haven't experienced that, at some point you will. And what I love about this passage is that if and when, I should say when you have felt like that, you can start to begin to imagine what it was like to be the early Christians when they were kicked out of Jerusalem. 
Let me just paint a quick picture. Um, go to the next slide here. There we go. So, a little bit of context. We're in Jerusalem. The early church is thriving. Christ has ascended, and the numbers of Christians are slowly growing and growing, and there's, a, there's, kind of, there's an ecstatic nature and a zeal to it. Persecution is starting, but still, things are overtly positive. The church is ecstatic, and then um, the church, as it grows, they realize that they need new helpers. And so, the leaders of the church, the apostles, uh, they create the first deacons. And some, one of them, his name is Stephen. And Stephen is full of zeal, and uh, one day, while he's preaching, he's arrested. And he's taken before the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and uh, he gives one of the most beautiful and powerful proclamations of the faith, and it leads to his death. The Jewish leaders take him out back. They strip off their clothes because they don't want their clothes to get dirty with blood. And they give their clothes to a young man, a young Pharisee in training named Saul. And they essentially lynch Stephen. And in a true picture of a, of a Christian life, Stephen, as he is dying, says, you know, to the Father, like, receive my spirit. And then he also says, do not hold this sin against them. And, uh, and then he, as Scripture says, and then he goes to sleep. Saul sees this, and in his mind, he's not broken by what he sees. Instead, he's thinking to himself, one of the cult leaders is dead. I got to do more of this. And so this church, which has been experiencing growth and has been following Christ faithfully, begins to be attacked. And it is methodical. Saul is zealous, and he goes door to door. Imagine, you know, being a Christian family in Jerusalem at this time, and you just hear the... As doors are getting knocked down, the text is so careful with the language and saying he goes door to door and he grabs men and he grabs women, and he yanks them out by their clothes, and he drags them off to jail. What is the church to do under the weight of all this persecution? And they're doing everything right. Well, the church scatters. The apostles stay back to kind of lead the church as in its suffering. They're not going to abandon the flock during this hard time. But the early Christians say to themselves, I, I can't let my family go to jail. And so they flee. And think about this. You know, the early church is made up exclusively of Jews. Jerusalem is like a magnet for the Jews. It draws everyone there for the festivals. The temple is there. This is where God is. And you've been, you've been taught that your entire life. And then your neighbors say, get out of here or we're throwing you in jail. Hard not to feel like you're being abandoned by God, right? But even more than that, where do they run off to? They run off to Samaria. And I don't know how much you know about this, but Samaria, are they're like the cousins of the Israelites. Uh, year, you know, centuries before this, Israel was divided into two kingdoms, and the northern kingdom was captured by its pagan neighbors. And uh, they intermarried with them which means that they also mix their religions together. And so for centuries, the Jews wouldn't have anything to do with them. They wouldn't let them in the temple. There was even a Jewish saying that if a, if a, if a Jewish person walked by a Samaritan and even touched their shadow, 
you have to cleanse yourself. You've become impure. And so there's a segregation between these two, um, these two peoples. But where is the safe ground to go? And so the early, the early Christians flee Jerusalem and they go to Samaria. Just imagine what they're thinking right now. God, we, where are you? Do you see us? We have done nothing wrong and yet we are suffering. We are struggling. And now we're in, we are foreigners in a strange land. I imagine many of them thought to themselves, I got to be honest, I'm out. I really don't want this anymore. <laughs> if this is what you're doing to your children, or this is what you'll let them go through, I, I, this isn't worth it. This isn't fair. Think of all the things I've done for you. But what I love about this passage is that um, that isn't how the Christians respond. That's how I would have responded, but that's not how the church, the church responds. So you can go to the next one. This is the stoning of Stephen. You can go one more. So unlike what I just said to you all, the church goes and they still keep preaching Jesus. Church, remember, when the church grows, it's not the apostles that really grow the church. It's not your church leaders that are inherently growing the church. It is you all. It is the local people in their work, in their play, in going to bars and coffee shops and going out. You all are the primary means by which God grows His church. We need leaders. We need deacons. But you all are the means, just like these local, um, the early Christians do. And so Philip, a friend of Stephen, who was recently martyred, if anyone's going to get mad, who should ditch Jesus, this Jesus guy, it should be Philip. My friend got killed in front of me, or maybe he even buried the body. We don't know. But when he flees Jerusalem, the first thing on his mind is, I got to tell these people about Jesus. And through signs and through persuasion, the Holy Spirit uses Philip and the Christians that flee to take these outsiders. The Samaritans are outsiders. They don't get to go to the, the, the temple of God. But suddenly they get told, wait a minute, we can be insiders? God doesn't hate us? We can, we can, actually, we can actually transcend racial and cultural backgrounds to actually be united? That is something we've never heard before. That's astonishing. Um, how amazing is it to think that the, the Jews, who for most of their history, when they were conquered, they were taken away from Jerusalem, that was punishment. That was seen as punishment in the Old Testament. But now, actually, this is God's primary means of growing the church. It's not staying in one place. It's you need to go out. Scattering has actually been transformed by Christ into something that actually brings healing and, and this, is, this was the hard part. Like, as I was kind of planning this sermon out, uh, the, the part of this passage that really hit me as I was struggling with my feelings of, God, I just kind of feel like I'm a cog in a machine and you're using me for ministry, but do you really love me? Do you really see me? Um, the passage that just frustrated me was the end of this passage where he says, and there was much joy in the city. Christian, when, when was the last time you really felt the joy of the Lord in your heart? Because this whole city, 
of outsiders was full of joy because of the simple proclamation of the gospel. How does that happen? That logic doesn't make sense. I experienced massive suffering and exile, and I lost everything, and yet I can't stop talking about Jesus, and that transformed an entire city. Samaritans didn't expect that. The early Christians didn't expect that, but that is how God works. And I think um, one of the ways I've, I've been trying to understand this passage better, I was listening to, I, I know many of you probably know this man, but I, I'm a huge fan of Tim Keller, and he's written and spoken a lot on the prodigal God. So, and, you know, as you guys know, the story of the prodigal sons, I should say, is the story of a father who has an older brother, eldest son and a younger son. And the youngest son goes up to his dad and he says, Dad, essentially, I kind of wish you were dead. I really just want your stuff. Give me your stuff so I can go off and do whatever I want. And the father agrees. The youngest son runs off to some other country and he blows all his money and doing whatever the heck he wants and going and investing whatever pleasurable thing he wants until it's all gone. And then a famine hits. And he's just trying to survive. He's in a pig pen, which would have been just, if you were a Jew, that would have been just like, you were at the bottom. You're where the pork is. You are the lowest of the low, and he can't even feed himself with the pods that are being fed to the pigs. You're lower than a pig. And so the younger brother does a little mental math. He kind of wakes up, has a lightning bolt moment. He's like, oh, I should, I, I, I got to go home. My, my dad's servants eat way better than I do. I bet you I can, you know, I can't be a son anymore, but maybe I can get hired on as a servant. Maybe I can do that. And as you all know the story, um, while he's still a, far, a long way off, the patriarch of this Middle Eastern family picks up, his, he picks up his luxurious robes and to the shock of everyone, runs a far distance to his, to his son and he embraces him. And while he starts to, while the son tries to argue about like, okay, you know, dad, like I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you, the, the father will just have none of it. And he says to the servant, who I guess ran with him, he says, put a ring on his finger and put royal clothes on him because he is back. He was dead and he is alive again. We're going to celebrate well, the older brother is off working in the field. He was diligently working the entire time. He never gave up. And so he's working and he's diligently pursuing whatever the father is asking him. And he hears the commotion and he, said, and he asks the servant, what's going on? And when he learns that the younger brother has come back, it, that is just, that is a bridge too far. I, I cannot take this. And he refuses to go into the feast. And so the father, again, has to leave the house and, you know, probably pick up the robes again and go into the mud of the field to go to the older brother and plead with him to come in. And the older brother says, and just, you can just like, as an older sibling, like I totally get this anger, <laughs> this, this rage, where he tells his dad, listen here, dad, I have slaved for you. I have done everything you have asked, and you won't even give me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when, and I love this, not even my brother, when this son of yours comes back, you throw the biggest party. And killing the fattened calf means that there's so much food that the neighbors are coming over. It's not just the family. And so I won't come in. 
I, I refuse, I refuse. This is not fair. And as you know, the father says to the older brother, my son, and my understanding of the Hebrew is that it's actually a little bit more tender than that. He says, my child, my child, I have seen all that you have done, and you are always with me, but we had to celebrate for your brother, your brother, by the way, not my son, your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. And as you know, that's where the story ends. There's no ending. It's left on a cliffhanger because the parable is for everyone. It's not just for those who feel like they're prodigals because as Pastor Tim Keller talks about, what the passage is saying is that there are two ways to be lost from God, to be running away from Him. One way is you can break all the rules and the other way is you can follow all the rules and still be far away from Jesus. You can say to God, like the Samaritans, I'm going to find God in my own way. No one's going to tell me how to worship God, thank you very much. And the crazy thing is, just like in the prodigal son story, the Samaritans, not the Jewish officials, not the people of the law who have the prophets and the law and Moses, they miss out. And the Samaritans who are outcasts, who are forsaken, they're the ones who get to say, wait a minute. Jesus came for me, not just for Jews. They came, he came for us. He died for us. We can come home. Wow. Now, if you're like me, you often feel more like an older brother. Maybe you're a younger brother. Maybe you have run away from God as far as, as, far as you possibly can sometime in your life, maybe even now. This message is for you. You can come home. There is grace and there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. But if you're like me, you're more often than not the older brother, and you feel like, God, I've done all the right things. And maybe you feel some conviction. Is there hope for older brothers? The parable ends without any conclusion. Well, another wonderful thing about the passage is that I think you get an answer to that. Because there is an older brother in this passage. Do you know who it is? It's Saul. Think about this. When Stephen is killed and Saul is clapping, essentially, Stephen prays, Lord, don't hold, don't hold them. Uh, please, basically, please forgive them. Saul is there, and in his zeal as an older brother, I just imagine the arguments that Paul is probably doing in his head. You know, Lord, I have been, I have followed the law. I have studied under the, under the Pharisees. I have, I'm zealous. I'm defeating a cult. And as you all know, Stephen's prayer gets answered. The man that approves of his death ends up becoming one of the greatest missionaries we've ever known in the entire church. And that's all because the Lord saves younger brothers and older brothers. If you've grown up in the church your entire life and you have struggled to believe the gospel, if you are still saying in your heart of hearts, I just need you to do something for me, God, that's why I'm doing all my good actions. Uh, there is hope for you in the person of Saul. He got to come home. Now, um, it's a wonderful passage. I'm sure all of us, we get, we get to remember the gospel and um, 
it's always important when, when engaging with Scripture to be thinking, okay, what is this passage calling me to believe? You know, it's really easy to kind of enjoy a sermon, to read a passage, and then we walk out of, we scatter out into Los Angeles, and we ask our, and then we kind of like forget about everything we just talked about. We prayed, and we asked for forgiveness. We, re- we remember, and then we go off, and then we forget. And I do that. I'm not saying I'm better than anybody here. But what are we being called to believe here in our day in Los Angeles? Um, I read a fantastic but hilariously titled article that I think gets at what we are being called to believe. And the article is, call, is called, and feel free to laugh, it's called, Can You Find God in a Bikini? <laughs> and what the article, and, and it's a hilarious title for something that's actually very sobering. And what it details is a group of young people in West Hollywood who have created something called Secular Sabbath, where you pay between $75 and $400 for a session where you get to be with a lot of other like-minded people, and you basically, there's no rules, there's no dogma. You can do sonic baths and screaming exercises and, you know, sonic floods and all kinds of stuff that I think I've never even heard of before. And the only rules are that there are no rules. You go in there, and there's a great quote, and this is um, from the article. I want to find God and know God in my own way. I don't want anyone to tell me the quality of God or how to worship or anything. I want all that to be my own experience. For those of us in the church who have grown up in the church our entire lives, it can be really easy to hear that and go, man, the kids are really screwed up these days. Man, I would never do something like that. Uh, And I would say two things to that. One is uh, there's something very honest about this. They're not looking for God. There was, the article even made it clear that there's no mention of dogma or God in this whole secular Sabbath experience. But my goodness, if that is not a spirit calling forth for something deeper than just this world. You may not call it God, but you're looking for something greater, and that gives hope. But then the other thing I would say, again, is um, for, the, for all of us older brothers, uh, we're not that different from them. We want the blessings, but we don't want the giver. And if we're honest, we often want God, a God that's more like a butler and not a savior. And I don't know if you're like me, but I've thought to myself sometimes, if I had to summarize some of the things I've, in my kind of argue, like arguments with God, I, I've thought to myself, God, why don't you just give me what I want and then leave me alone so that I can enjoy myself in peace? I don't love the, I don't love the law of God, but if you can give me what I want, I, I'll do whatever you want me to do. That would be fantastic. I don't experience the joy that the Samaritans are feeling because I am forgetting that the giver was scattered and came for me and for you. God did not abandon us. He came to us. He sent the most precious thing in the entire world that he has, his only son, to pursue us. And Jesus on the cross was rejected by God so that we could be welcomed into the family. Um, brothers and sisters, you have been bought with a price, and that is a price that can never be taken away. There is a foundation underneath you that cannot be defeated by anything you do. And um, 
We can never sin so far that God cannot forgive you, and you can never obey so well that God owes you. We have to repent of both our sins and our good deeds and embrace Jesus as Savior. And this is my last, this is my last word to all of you. When Jesus becomes the goal of your life, instead of trying to get things from him, you will experience the joy that the Samaritans felt centuries ago. And that's a joy, frankly, that Los Angeles needs. Church, you are in Samaria right now. May Christ Jesus so fill us with joy in him that we become a blessing to this city and a powerful testimony to a watching world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this time for everyone here, Lord. I pray that your Holy Spirit will be active. May you increase anything that is not of you. May it not stay in uh, our ears, Lord God. And may you be powerful and active in the word. May you, Jesus, become more precious and fill us with joy that it becomes infectious and we want to keep talking about you with other people. And so fill our city with joy that is only found in you. We ask this in your name. Amen.